0: Well, good morning. My name is Scott Cope. I serve as the church planting resident here at Hope. It's great to be together on this chilly Sunday morning. I'm going to pray for us once more, and then we're going to dive in. Father, help us now as we come to your word. Speak to us, for your servants are listening. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. W.C. Fields was a famously immoral man. The beloved comedian of the first half of the 20th century was known for his drinking and womanizing and just generally irreverent behavior. As one article describes him, no man ever worked so patiently at wrecking his soul and body as did this prince of comedians. A Mississippi of gin sluiced through him in his declining years. So you can imagine the surprise when, in 1946, as Fields was sick and dying, a friend happened upon him reading a Bible. When asked what in the world he was doing, Fields responded, looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes. We all do it, right? We go to AT&T or the Verizon store, and we're there to get a new phone, and and we try to look for the angle so that we can get the new customer rate. Or when pulled over for speeding, you know, we try to patiently explain to the officer, no, no, this was unique, the the law doesn't apply in this case, I'm really not to blame, there's been a great misunderstanding. This impulse, looking for loopholes, again, it's not restricted to to the consumer or, or legal sphere, But as Fields' story illustrates, it can also take a religious bent. And so this morning, we study a section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is explicitly closing the loopholes that the religious leaders of his day had created. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 21 through 26 this morning. And you can find that on page 810 of the Bibles provided. If you're new to Christianity or new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller ones. So chapter five, verses 21 to 26. So far in the book of Matthew, we've seen Jesus' kingly identity established in chapter one through the royal genealogy. His miraculous birth was retold in chapter two. He was declared to be the son of God at his baptism publicly in chapter three. In chapter 4, he resisted the temptations of the devil. He began his public ministry. And then since the, the beginning of chapter 5, we've been in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, where Jesus covers what it means to be his follower, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we heard that, that he is upholding the law. He's not abolishing it, and he insists on the need for a righteousness greater than the religious leaders of that day. And so we arrive at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. We'll have three sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Avoid anger, pursue reconciliation, and be quick to make peace, lest divine judgment come. Avoid anger, pursue reconciliation, and be quick to make peace lest divine judgment come. So read with me, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. until you have paid the last penny. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 21 and 22, entitled, Don't Be Angry at Your Brother. And our passage begins with Jesus saying, you've heard it said to those of old, and then he quotes the sixth commandment from Exodus 20. This is the first of six times in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus will say something like, you've heard it said, and he'll quote some Old Testament passage, and then he'll say, but I say to you, and then he'll give some instruction about anger or lust or marriage or whatever the case is. And and this is where Curtis's sermon from last week is so important. Because when he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament, but rather correcting misinterpretations of it. This is really important. Jesus is not abrogating or abolishing it. This is just what Curtis said last week. And and I think actually we get a clue of that in what Jesus says. You you look there in verse 22. He says, but I say to you, and the ESV and, and every English, major English translation does a great job translating that word as but, however, that word that Jesus uses as but is is not the strong disjunction in Greek. So in Greek, you can have a strong or a weak disjunction. In verse 17, he gives the strong disjunction. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You you hear the contrast, right? It's a strong contrast. Well, here in these six passages in the remainder of chapter 5, in our text today, Jesus uses the weaker disjunction. You could translate them as now I say to you, or and I say to you, or more than that, I say to you. The point is that Jesus' problem is not with the Old Testament. His problem is with the hypocritical application of it in his day. Because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were indeed looking for loopholes. They were looking for ways that God's law wouldn't have to apply to them. I think we see this most famously in Luke 10, where Jesus says, Love your neighbor as yourself, and this lawyer comes to Jesus. Do you remember what he asks? But who is my neighbor? Tell me the situations where that law doesn't apply to me. He's trying to delimit and restrict the application of God's word. And so, this whole remaining section of Matthew 5 is about Jesus closing the loopholes that the Pharisees had created. Right, So the Pharisees were, were happy to be angry and vitriolic. But, but I didn't murder. They were filled with lust. But I, I never committed adultery. They would divorce their wives for any reason. They would break oaths whenever it was convenient. They were vengeful rather than forgiving. And they hated their enemies. And so Jesus says, Enough. I say to you, and so in our particular passage, the loophole was, well, I'm not going to murder you. I'm going to be all kinds of angry and murderous in my heart towards you, but I won't. I won't actually murder you. And so therefore, I'm fine. I'm righteous. I can check the box of having fulfilled the sixth commandment. To which Jesus responds, no, you can't. Because that's what we see there in verse 22. Look there. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You know, sometimes popular culture imagines Jesus as a relativistic, Um, you know, kind of walking around, why can't we be friends, kumbaya singing, obedience doesn't really matter, let's just all get along type of guy. But notice that when Jesus here comes to the sixth commandment, he doesn't soften it, he rather raises the bar. Far from the Pharisees caring too much about holiness, they didn't care about it enough. The religious leaders weren't overly concerned about holiness. No, they didn't care enough about it. So, yes, Jesus says, don't murder. That's obviously very bad. And it will make you liable to judgment. But so, too, will anger. And in this, Jesus is taking us to the heart of the commandment, what God always intended. So when God commanded in Exodus 20, you shall not murder, he wasn't only concerned with prohibiting external behavior. But rather, he wanted his people to be free of murderous rage. This was the correct interpretation all along, what the Pharisees had missed. Because there's a connection between anger and murder, isn't there? I mean, anger is murder of the heart. And murder is anger flowing through your hands. Now, Jesus isn't stating that anger and murder are exact moral equivalents. I think we have biblical basis to believe that, that there is a difference. But this is not to imply that unrighteous anger is morally neutral, or that we should take any comfort in our angry disposition towards others, because, well, at, at least we haven't murdered Jesus' point, his whole point, is that anger, whether in our heart or our hands or in our mouths as we insult others, it makes us liable to judgment. Every one of us. The Heidelberg Catechism helpfully summarizes the issue. It says, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? Answer, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I'm not to be party to this and others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I'm not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. When the sixth commandment, friends, is properly understood this way, we see that we all fall short of God's law. None of us escapes the indictment. But Jesus doesn't only escalate the quality of obedience required, he also raises the bar in terms of the punishment meted out. Did you catch that? So murder leads to judgment. Everyone knows that. It it leads to judgment in the here and now, in the courts, and it leads to God's judgment if unrepented of. And it's that second reality that Jesus especially picks up on. So so notice that verse 2 begins by saying that everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. It's the exact same phrase used of the murderer, liable to judgment. Okay, so perhaps Jesus is merely referring to the temporal, you know, punishment in the here and now. Maybe that's just what he's referring to. But in the next example he gives, you see it there in the middle of the verse, of calling someone a fool or insulting them, he escalates the punishment by saying that person will be liable to the council or the Sanhedrin. That that was the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. So it's kind of moved beyond the local judge to the Supreme Court. This is an escalation in punishment, in severity. And then you see finally that last clause of verse 22. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the escalation of judgment. This is the the judgment that Jesus has been referring to all along, right? I know we've got a lot of lawyers in the room, a lot of law students. Um, A human court is not competent to judge whether or not you're angry. So when Jesus says, if you're angry, you'll be liable to judgment, he's not referring to a human law court. He's referring to God's law and God's court. He's not saying that you'll be taken to the Supreme Court for insulting someone. He's saying, Jesus is saying, that you and I are liable to divine judgment for our unrighteous anger. We are in danger of hellfire for insulting and belittling others. And so again, friends, we are here confronted with the fact that that this Jesus may not be the one culture expects or that that we tend to box in because certainly he was the friend of sinners was he not I mean he was gentle and lowly of heart he is that way he overflows with kindness and mercy and love and compassion but do you know who talks the most about hell in the bible it's Jesus Jesus spoke more about hell than any other biblical writer. Old Testament, New Testament, you name it. If there ever was a fire and brimstone preacher, it was Jesus. The Apostle John describes him as full of grace and truth. Right? He was full of grace. He overflowed tenderness and compassion. And he's the embodiment of truth. He doesn't pull punches. He says it how it is. Jesus does not shy away from speaking of the horrors of hell. So in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Jesus describes hell as a place of eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In Matthew thirteen forty-two, it's a place where people experience a furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, 30, it is portrayed as outer darkness. In Luke 16, 23, Jesus says it is a place of torment. In Mark nine forty-three, it's an unquenchable fire. And Mark 9.48, the worm does not die in hell. Friends, these are the very words of Jesus. I, I don't know what to say in response to such descriptions. This is the terrible fate that awaits all those who do not trust in Christ. And even if you take Jesus' words to be metaphorical, that is, they're not to be taken literally, but they're surely not describing a place that's really pleasant and nice. Whatever they describe, it is horrible beyond human comprehension. Friends, this is what we all deserve. This is what Jesus says we all deserve because of our unrighteous anger, because of our murderous thoughts and attitudes and words towards others. Whether with our kids or our spouse, with our office mate or roommate, we all stand guilty in Jesus' court of law. We're all lawbreakers, and so we're all liable to hellfire. And you know, lest we think, well, Scott, I just don't think of my anger as that big of a deal. The defendant does not get to set the terms of the court. The judge does. The lawgiver does. And as judge, Jesus says that anger is a big deal. And the reason for that is because when we're angry and murderous in our hearts towards others, we're angry at people who are made in God's image. God made them. He loves them. And who are you To want to kill them in your thoughts. Who am I to be angry and raging and hateful in my attitude? This is someone God has made. This is someone God loves. This is what the sixth commandment has been about all along. And Jesus closes the loophole and takes us back to what it really is about. Well, the verses 21 and 22 are all about not being angry with your brother. Let's turn now to our second section in verses 23 and 24, entitled, Don't Let Your Brother Be Angry With You. We read in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. You know, basically these verses reverse the roles of the first section. Notice also that Jesus doesn't say, if you've sinned against your brother, go and be reconciled. But but he says, if he's got something against you. I think the implication is he may or may not have good reason to have something against you. But that is immaterial to your responsibility which is to go. Be the initiator. Even if it's 95% his fault, if he's upset, you go and you initiate and you own up to your 5%. And notice the great lengths, literally, that Jesus tells his followers to make peace. Jesus envisions someone traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. They're at the temple, at the altar, and there you remember My brother has something against me. And you're supposed to leave your gift and go back to Galilee. That's a hundred miles each way. You know, on foot. I moan if I've got to go downstairs or pick up the phone to apologize to my wife. And Jesus says, I know it's inconvenient. I know it's going to cost you something. But don't go to the worship service. Don't give the offering. Go and be reconciled. And then come back. You know, this is the equivalent of Boston to Hartford. Why is Jesus so adamant on this point? Well, it's because God doesn't want our hypocritical worship. You can't love him while simultaneously hating those made in his image. Now you may not always be able to make reconciliation. The Apostle Paul recognizes this when he says in Romans 12, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But Christians should always be seeking peace. We should be on the the front end of, of initiating reconciliation. For as 1 John 4 states, Whoever loves God must also Love his brother. And it's at precisely this point that the Pharisees' loopholes were most pronounced. Right, because they were the, the religious leaders. They they claimed to love God. But what was their attitude towards those around them? Well, they were angry and lustful and divorcing and lying and retaliating and hating. They they made these loopholes so that they didn't have to love their brother. And so Jesus is saying, "You, you can't do that. If you want to worship God, you must seek reconciliation with your neighbor. I know it's costly and inconvenient, but if you would follow me, you cannot be a hypocrite. Seek reconciliation. And notice in all of Jesus' speech so far that he is specifically talking about relationships amongst his followers. Do you you see that? He says, don't be angry or insult your brother and seek reconciliation specifically with your brother. These aren't generic terms for humanity. These are relationships within the covenant community, within the church. And so Hope Fellowship Church, brothers and sisters, how are you doing at not being angry at and positively pursuing reconciliation with those in this church. As much as a priority as it is to live at peace with everyone, and it is, there is a special priority to living peaceably within the church. Because there is a special ugliness to divisions within the church. You know, in the church among the redeemed of God, there should reign peace and love and forbearance and long-sufferingness and humility and forgiveness and confession and repentance and joy. Amongst brothers and sisters, we should be quick to pursue reconciliation with those whom we've covenanted with. You know, we've covenanted for their good, not their harm. Of course, this principle does apply beyond the church. And so, Christian, I wonder, how would your co-workers and extended family describe you? Would they characterize you as a peacemaking person? Or do you tend to inflame situations? Do you relish controversy and enjoy disagreement? Or are you known for bringing people together? For restoring relationships. I wonder what your social media accounts would reveal. Perhaps there are people today that you need to reconcile with. Maybe with a spouse for a sin or sin pattern that you've never fully repented and confessed. Perhaps with a child or office mate or roommate whom you've lashed out in anger. Kids, are there siblings or parents that you need to apologize to? Because, brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Jesus is calling us to a high bar of unity and holiness and love. To pursue reconciliation even at great expense to ourselves. But in this, he isn't calling us to something that he hasn't done. For consider how the Lord Jesus pursued reconciliation with us when he took the initiative to come to us. Though he had done nothing wrong, we had absolutely no cause to have anything against him. And yet to make peace, he traveled not 100 miles to seek us out. No, he left the glories of heaven to come to earth. He bridged a distance infinitely farther than that of Jerusalem to Galilee. And the cost to him was infinitely greater than some lost time and some sore feet. It came at the cost of his very own life. Such is Jesus' love in seeking us out, in pursuing reconciliation, even with us. Because do you know for whom Christ did all this? It wasn't for his brothers and sisters who had been momentarily estranged. It wasn't for those who really had loved God wholeheartedly and there had been some small snafu. But we are enjoined to reconcile with a brother or sister. What does Romans 5 say? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. O oh, beloved, Christ came even for us. And who were we? We were the weak, ungodly, sinner enemies. And yet he came. And yet he initiated. He loved us by laying down his life, paying for our sins, bearing the wrath of God as our substitute in our behalf to save us from the judgment of God, to save us from hellfire. As the great Wesley hymn states, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace emptied himself and came in love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Friends, this is the model of reconciling love that we follow as Christians. This is what we look to as the pattern for our own discipleship. Though our brother may have little reason to be against us, yet we had nothing that we could hold against Christ. But he didn't remain cold and distant and indifferent to our plight. He didn't shrug and say they brought it on themselves. He rather came. To pursue us. Friends, praise God. Praise God. And so it's in grateful recognition of this peacemaking heart that then compels us to show that same impulse to others. Because we have been so incredibly loved. And so it's with all that in mind that we turn to our final section found in verses 25 and 26. Entitled, Make Peace Quickly, Before It's Too Late. Verse 25 reads, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last well, here we know there's kind of a, a scenery change. The second section, section is in the temple, at the altar, in the religious sphere. Here, this is in the courtroom, where somebody's suing you for a debt. Right? You have pennies. Uh, they're bringing you to court. And so on the surface, the point seems to be, if you have an accuser that's suing you, do everything in your power to make peace before it's too late, or you'll end up in jail. Simple enough. I don't think that's the main thing going. Like one commentator summarizes it well. Jesus' illustration of the urgency of reconciliation pictures an out-of-court settlement between fellow litigants. These verses offer good advice at the, literal legal, at the literal level of legal proceedings. But in light of verses 21 and 22, they obviously refer primarily to the spiritual goal of averting God's wrath on judgment day. Before it is too late to change one's destiny. You see, Jesus is mainly concerned that you come to terms with God in His court. And yeah, I think this is confirmed even in verse 29, it uses the exact same language as at the end of verse 25. So, at the end of verse 25, uh, for example, the Christian Standard Bible has it a little more literally. Somebody is thrown into prison. And then in verse 29, the exact same words are used to describe someone thrown into hell. Okay, so again, I I think Jesus is referring primarily to the the spiritual urgency. Because really, this is the climax of our passage. Uh, Look again at verse 26. Truly I say to you, which is an attention getter, right? Right? You don't say, like, truly I say to you, I'm going to get the Cheerios out. Right? You, you say that when something really important when, that you're about to say. Truly I say to you, you will never, and here the Greek is emphatic, you will never get out until you've paid every last penalty. This is the point Jesus' argument has been building towards all along. Jesus isn't saying that, hell might be temporary, and if you pay your debt, you'll be on your way. No, our sins are against an infinitely good God, and thus are infinitely hellish, and thus are deserving of infinite punishment. The point that Jesus is making is that you will never fully pay your debt. You will never get out. And so in light of the horrors of hell and the certainty of judgment, how should you respond? What is Jesus getting at? Be reconciled to God. Friend, if you're here and you've not made peace with God through the blood of his Son, what, what is keeping you? Why would you not turn to him and trust in him today? Trust in Christ's perfect life in substitutionary death in victorious resurrection for the forgiveness of all your sins. Avoid the certainty of judgment with the certainty of his love. And do so today, right? That's Jesus' whole point. That's what verse 25 says. Make friends quickly. Do it while you're on the way today. Don't wait until the last minute. Don't bank on a deathbed conversion. I can't tell you how many times people have told me that. Oh, I'll figure it out later. No, Jesus' point is that there's an urgency. You're not promised tomorrow. Be reconciled today. Friends, don't be misled by how seemingly pedestrian Jesus' ethical concerns are. You know, many people have been fooled by how seemingly mundane they are. You know, Jesus talks about such commonplaces here in the Sermon on the Mount as anger and lust and telling the truth and marriage and prayer and fasting and money. Yet note this, Jesus insists that these everyday moments are so weighty that they possess eternal end-of-the-world significance. There is a final judgment day coming. And Jesus' discourse is meant to prepare his people for that day. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is building towards. That's how chapter 7 will end. So don't think that Jesus is just another self-help prophet. This is not how to win friends and influence people. This is rather how to build your life upon the rock of Jesus' words. So that when the storm of divine judgment comes, you will stand. So as we conclude and as a means of response, uh, Christians, I wonder, are there people that you need to reconcile with? We who have been shown such mercy and forgiveness, we should be the first to display it towards others. If you want to think more about that, tonight in Bedford, we'll be having a preview service for the church plant where we'll be thinking about this very theme of forgiveness and grace in the church. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, consider the infinite lengths that Christ has gone to make peace. It cost him nothing less than his very own life. He did it to save you from hell and to bring you into his everlasting heavenly kingdom. He did it Because of his love. And so, to quote the Apostle Paul, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that in so many ways we have been angry. We have been murderous in our thoughts and in our attitudes. Father, in so many ways we have not sought peace. And so we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for the infinite love of Christ. We thank you that he did not stand in indifference towards us but that he took the initiative and drew near. Oh, Father, we praise you for your great love. And so we pray for any here this morning who are watching online who do not know that love. Father, we pray that you would grant them the gift of faith, that they would see and turn and reconcile and find life and forgiveness. Father, help us. We we are... So needy, but you are so generous. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name.